0: Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a blessing to share God's word with you today. We'll be in Job chapter 5 if you want to turn in your Bibles there. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you that you do speak to us through your word, that we can count on everything you say because you are true, you are just, you are righteous. Thank you for your favor that you've placed upon us. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for the Holy Spirit who fills us and empowers us to do your will. And we thank you, Lord, that even in delays, you prove yourself faithful, that you show your love in ways to all, and that you can be trusted. And I pray that our faith would grow, Lord, that we would, from this passage in Job, draw near to you, trusting you more loving you more, and being obedient to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I really love about God is that he knows everything. He can't be disappointed. He can't have expectations dashed like us because he knows exactly what will happen. God's all-knowing. He knows the past and the future. It's all laid before him presently. And I remember as a kid having expectations dashed, being disappointed when I thought something was going to happen and something very different happened. Like uh, I was going to go 10 pin bowling with my uncle, brother, and cousin. And it was just a spur of the moment thing. And so we took the bowling ball out in the front yard and started tossing it back and forth. And we're commenting on how great an exercise this would be using it like a medicine ball. And, and, and my brother's tooth was chipped when I threw the ball. And so, I did not go see a movie or go bowling that day. And my brother went to the dentist. So that was not what I expected. I was disappointed. I was disappointed. He didn't catch the ball. I was disappointed that uh, the day didn't turn out how I wanted, but God wasn't surprised by anything that happened. And he provided comfort for my brother in dental care. So praise the Lord for that. And in the story of Job, we also see someone who was disappointed. Someone who expected an outcome or expected to hear from God, and he remained silent. Job, what he feared, came upon him. He lost his wealth, his family, his health. God seemed silent. It seemed like God had turned against him. This is what Job feared more than anything. His wife told Job to curse God and die. Job refused to do so. As he sat in ashes, as he scraped himself with a potsherd, three friends came to visit Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They came to comfort him, and for seven days, they sat in silence with him, and they could see his grief was so great, they didn't want to add to it. And Job finally opens his mouth. He cursed the day of his birth. He wouldn't curse God, but he cursed the day of his birth. He wished he had never been born. He, He couldn't make any sense out of his suffering. He couldn't see what purpose was being furthered or why it had happened. And Eliphaz slowly and gently began to speak. And he, he suggested that, well, if you sow wickedness, you reap the same. If God charges angels with sin, how much more man who's made from the dust of the ground? How much more worthy of judgment is man? Job had suffered. And by the Words of his friends, though well-intentioned, they added to his affliction. There were assumptions made in ignorance of Job's situation. And they came to comfort him. They didn't know how to do it. And Job was unable to receive it because it was misdiagnosed about what had led to it, what God was doing. Well, Job, if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. And our passage picks up in the middle of Eliphaz's first address of Job. In Job 5, verse 1. Call out now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Eliphaz speaks with unquestioned authority like, hey, this is, this is a set thing. You can't really speak against this. When people suffer, there's always a good reason for it. And he uses examples of people who suffered, who were to blame for their trouble. He says, the foolish man, he's the target of wrath. Like he brought that upon himself. A deluded person, they're ruined by their own envy. And the way Eliphaz sees things is very black and white. It's either this or that. And he's saying, well, this is what's happening. So you must have done something to deserve this. And he says... The parents, uh, the folly of the parents results in the destruction of their children. The apple never falls far from the tree. The wealth of the foolish is consumed by the hungry. Even the earth is against such where like the thorns are choking out the food and then other people will eat it. He says, the soil's not to blame, but man, man's the guilty culprit. He's born to trouble like sparks fly upward. It's just guaranteed because there's men, there's trouble. And we bring it upon ourselves that man invites affliction, trouble and judgment from God because of a result of our sinful choices, which is true generally, but it wasn't true in Job's case. His application is so cringeworthy because Job was suffering because God saw him as a righteous man, not because he had sinned, not because he needed more correction. And he sat there quietly and he listened as his friend continued in Job 5 verse 8. But as for me, I would seek God and to God, I would commit my cause who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty and from their hand. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Eliphaz now goes on to say what he would do in Job's situation. And in doing so in saying, well, Job, if I was in your shoes, I would seek the Lord. That implies that Job hadn't been seeking the Lord, which we know he had been. And it's, he suggests that he hadn't really truly committed himself to God. Like if you really entrusted yourself to to God, Job, you would have comfort right now. Your life would be improving, but because you're still suffering, because you're still in affliction, I don't know that you've really done that. This is what I would do, Job. Isn't it easy to make decisions for others to say what they should do when you are not the one suffering? And really you have no idea of what they're going through. We've probably been on both sides of this where we have had an easy prescription for someone. If you just do this and do that, everything's better. Or have you been on the receiving end of that? And you're like, well, you have no idea of what I'm going through or the reason why this is happening. How can you know? Like, all right, Job, this is the way to clean up your mess, to improve your life. Do what I would do, Job, and everything will be better. This formulaic approach to providing comfort from affliction, offering these promises It doesn't take every individual or situation into account. It doesn't take into account what God is doing, what God's plans were, because his ways are above ours. We don't know what God's getting at or what he's aiming to accomplish through a delay. Eliphaz knew much, but his ignorance in Job's case, it led to oversimplification and error, and it offered no comfort for a man who did seek God, a man who trusted in God. Now, Eliphaz is correct in saying that God is worthy to be worshiped, to be committed, like we should commit our case unto him. We should seek the Lord. Absolutely, we should. He is glorious. He is good. He is a deliverer of those who cry out to him. God does sustain the earth with rain. He does make the fields grow and fruitful. He exalts the humble. He protects those who mourn. He frustrates the deceitful schemes of the crafty. And like Solomon wrote in Proverbs, the principle does stand that he who digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a rock will have it roll back upon him. And in the mind of Eliphaz, Job stood at the crossroads. He's like, you have this option set before you you can continue suffering because you're refusing to repent for this hidden sin, or you could choose to seek the Lord and be saved, be saved from destruction, committing yourself to him. In making a judgment about knowing the cause of Job's trial and how to bring it to an end, it was a terrible injustice. As Eliphaz said, the Lord also saves from the mouth of the mighty. And it's like this was being fulfilled right here. He had made these false assumptions and accusations against Job. They would not stick before God. These words must have stung. God forgive us when we have been those miserable comforters. We're trying to help. We have compassion, but the way that we say it and the implications we're making uh, are really in ignorance. When we think we know why God, whose ways are past finding out, is doing something, we can know we're wrong (laughs) because we can't see everything. We don't know everything, but we can know God. We can know his character and his goodness. And so praise him for revealing himself to us. Job 5 verse 17. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he shall redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. We see Hebrews 12 echoes the sentiments of this passage that we ought not to despise the chastening of God because it shows his ownership over us, that his, his divine acceptance of us, that he would correct us because he's not forsaking us. He wants us to grow and to mature and to become more like him, just like a father would uh, correct a son in whom he delights. God's correction, it's rightly viewed as a privilege. It is a blessing God doesn't bruise us without an aim to restore, to redeem. It's like a surgeon. He cuts us with a scalpel to remove a foreign object to promote healing, or a dentist will drill out decay in a tooth for a filling. A doctor will snap a limb back into place, and that really hurts. Um, but that's so healing can begin. A wise rebuke. It wounds our pride, but that pain it precedes setting us right. Quite often, that is the way. There will be pain, uh, just like in childbirth, right? There's these months of carrying the child. Then there's that really excruciating experience of giving birth. But then there's great joy that follows when a child is born into the world. We ought to, as God's people, have all confidence in God's power to, and wisdom to heal, to know what to do, to know what he's doing and that he will bring things to pass in his good time, that he is a deliverer. He will redeem us. And being broken by God precedes being made whole. Like there's that, that whole redemptive passage, that idea we see in Christ, who was pierced for our iniquities and bruised for us, that we could be made whole, that we could be forgiven and healed. Eliphaz, he misdiagnosed Job's suffering as a result of God's judgment for sin. Job was a sinner. That's true. But the man who sat in ashes with burning pain and scratched his boils, it was satanic assault that he was dealing with, that God had allowed. And Job's situation, it clearly shows that not all suffering is because of a particular sin we are guilty of. The disciples asked Jesus when they saw a blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. All have sinned, but to assume a person's blind or has suffered loss because of sin is foolish. And this thinking can persist in the church to this day, where some presume a deadly earthquake has happened because abortion has been made legal or um, a flood or a fire is because of government legislation over same-sex marriage or a wayward child, a result of parental negligence. Who are we to make judgments about what God does and what God allows when we don't know all that God knows? And we don't know how he is working or why he has done a thing or not another, because we can have these questions all the time. Well, God, why don't you do this? Wouldn't it be better if this happened? but we're not God. We we don't have an eternal perspective. God gives most people fingers on their hands. Better than using them to point out faults in God or in others, we do better to grasp the meaning of what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 13, 4 and 5, who gauged the righteousness of people by what happened to them. Jesus said, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem i tell you no but unless you repent you will all likewise perish the consequences of sin are dire those who stand in judgment of god without humbling themselves first in repentance they do head towards destruction and so jesus is pointing out like yeah those those Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, those people upon whom that tower fell, it wasn't because they were worse sinners than anyone else. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You will perish too. We all are all mortal. We all have sin to confess before the Lord. And Eliphaz continued with the benefits Job would receive if he would respond to God's correction in Job 5, starting in verse 21. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine, and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth, for you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace, and you shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many, and your offspring like the grass of the earth." You shall come to the grave at a full age as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Behold, we have searched it out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. He gives all these examples of how God would bless those who respond to his correction. And it might be a comforting thought that if I could just meet God's conditions I could be protected from hurtful comments. I could enjoy a life free from fear and lasting peace. I love the idea of coming home and finding nothing amiss, right? It's like this great life that's like, if you just do this, Job, if you would just seek the Lord, if you just commit your way to him, think of how good your life could be. Seeing your children's children, living life to a good old age. Don't you want that? And we're like, well, yeah, of course we want that. But this approach to life that had worked for Eliphaz to this point, he prescribed it for Job. Mason says this in the Enduring Word Commentary. He says, Aspirin is a good and effective medicine, but it is useless against cancer. Similarly, so much of the advice that Eliphaz and the other friends dole out is, in its own right, correct and good and true. But because it is wrongly applied, it becomes useless. More than useless, it is a lie. And that is a great wisdom to know that if we suppose we know something, when we know nothing, we can give the wrong advice. And God is the one who knows. He's the one to be sought. If Eliphaz would have done the things faithfully, what he is telling Job to do, he would have phrased it a bit differently, I suppose. When we claim to know why God allows people to suffer, like Eliphaz, we can be like the believers in Laodicea, who believed that they were prosperous. They said, we had need of nothing, but in God's sight, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Like he's like, our logic is sound, Job. This is sound logic. You should, you should do this. But we'll see Job's response in Job 6, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, oh, that my grief were fully weighed. And my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or the ox low over its fodder? Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are as loathsome food to me. Job patiently waited while Eliphaz spoke. And when he opened his mouth, he lamented that no one could possibly understand the depths of his grief and sorrow. He admitted, I spoke strong words when I cursed the day of my birth, when I asked why have these things befallen me. But he did so because the weight of his grief was immense. From the beginning, Job credited God for his affliction. And he says, It's like God has shot me through with poisonous arrows. Like the poison has gone into my bloodstream and it is working to deadly effect, like to my soul. I am dying inside because of what I am going through, because of what I'm experiencing. Not just the loss, but I have this lack of fellowship with God right now, and it's brutal, it's terrible. It's not just a superficial loss of wealth and status and my prides hurt. No, I am really wounded inside. And he asks this rhetorical question. Hey, does a donkey bray or an oxen low while they're eating? The answer is no. If they're content, I guess uh, those animals are, are more well-mannered than us who speak with our mouths full. When, a, when an ox is chewing the cud, he's not mooing at the same time. He's content. And so Job says, it's perfectly sensible that I would speak forth how I'm feeling because my grief is so, like the the way I'm feeling and the way that I'm speaking, they go together perfectly. He asks, can flavorless food be eaten? If we are eating dinner and it's very flavorless or we're like, where's the, where's the taste? We will stop eating to season our food. Maybe you like some hot sauce, maybe some salt, But you will, you'll liven it up a bit so that you can get some flavor out of it, right? So Job's like, the white of an egg, I have no interest to eat it. But when mixed with salt, it is nourishing. It is tasty. I, I would like that. But without salt, I have no desire to eat it. The flavors, they agree with one another very well. So that verbal expression of grief, it was appropriate given his situation and how he felt and Job says i'm not going to eat food that's loathsome to me and that was really his view of this eloquent feast of words that eliphaz presented to job he longed for comfort he longed for hope but the words of eliphaz they were not seasoned with grace there was no grace there it was tasteless it was refused it's like no you don't get it eliphaz you don't understand Job 6, verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have comfort, though in anguish I would exalt. He will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end? that I should prolong my life. Is my strength, the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze is not my help, not within me and is success driven from me. Job wished he had never been born. And here he says, I wish that God would cut me off. At least it would be him doing it. And I could be free of this affliction because he was in anguish body and soul. And he's like, well, God's the only reason I'm still alive. I, I'm, I wish for death, but I'm being sustained day after day in this dreadful condition where he has this terrible disease, where he's got these burning boils and he's scraping them and just feeling terrible inside and out. And he's at a point where there was just nothing in his life that he could look at and draw any uh, delight from, or have an expectation of something good coming out of it. And he's like, I'm not like an unfeeling stone that's immovable I'm not impervious like brass. Like my flesh, it's weak. It's wasting away. My success, it's been driven away. He doesn't hold out any hope for a dramatic change for the better. There's not like, well, you know, in a a month's time, if I keep on this medication, I should see an improvement. There was nothing like that. He had lost everything. He could not see his situation changing. The only hope he had was that God would take his life, cause his suffering to cease, and the sooner the better. I just really feel for Job, and I feel for people who feel like him, who feel like comfort is far away, like there's there's really no hope in this life. Have you ever looked forward to something? During my life, I've looked forward to many things with the expectation of usually look forward to it because there's something good in it for you. Something fun, refreshing, happiness. I I remember buying my brother the perfect toy, saving up money, buying it in October for Christmas. And it was like killing me to not give it to him because it was just so perfect. And I'm like, oh, he's going to love this. And to have that in the closet for all that time was just terrible. I've looked forward to grand finals. Um events, a special meal, a birthday, when you're really thirsty and you're drinking, that water's being poured and you're like, I want to drink that. I want to satisfy my thirst because I'm so parched right now. And there's events I looked forward to that I wanted to last forever. And there are events that I look forward to being over so I could just move past them because I didn't expect them to be fun. For us, there's, it seems like there's pretty much something to look forward to where it's like, if we lose a game, we go, well, we'll get them next time. Or there's always next season. And and even when we're done playing and we hang up our boots, we can still watch a game. We can still, even if our eyes fail and we can't really see the screen, we can hear the game. There's so much that we take for granted and all had been taken away from Job. It was a more welcome prospect just to be done with life. Than to have to process this grief and loss. Job 6 verse 14, to him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away, which are dark because of the ice and into which the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Timah look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them. They are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and are confused. For now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. Did I ever say bring something to me or offer a bribe for me from your wealth or deliver me from the enemy's hand or redeem me from the hand of oppressors? Job says it's Natural that if a friend sees one of his friends in affliction, will naturally respond by showing kindness, expressing care and sympathy. And he points out that this isn't limiting, limited to God-fearing people. And if someone, even if someone stops fearing the Lord, you should still be kind to them. When you see someone stumble and fall face first onto the footpath, you should drop what you're doing and go see if they're okay, if you could help them in some way lend assistance, but this was not Job's experience as the one who fell. It's like he was the one who fell and his friends were explaining to him like why he had lost his balance and that it was up to him to lift himself up and to to just never let that happen again. Like they weren't showing compassion in that moment when his grief was so great. And he compared his brothers and those would include his friends to visit him as a deceitful stream. We read in Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. A true friend keeps loving even when there's disagreements, even should there be distance or there's seasons of life that delay catching up that you keep caring for that person because he's your friend. In times of adversity and difficulty, a brother's care shines because that's when they, they wax strong to the occasion. In J- Job's words, they paint an allegorical picture of a caravan of travelers in a dry and dusty, hot summer. And they're going to where they know there was a stream. In the winter, there was ice where this, river had, this stream had been. And then when the snow had melted, the water rushed in a torrent. But when it was hot, When the need for water was great, when their animals were beginning to faint and they're like, we really need water to get to our destination. And they finally get to the place. And it's like, they've crossed over hills and with every rise, they're thinking, are we there at that oasis yet? Oh, I can't wait to to dip, have a dip in that spring and to drink some fresh water. I mean, how long has it been since we had clean water? And, and they're looking forward to it and they see the area and they're like, where's the water? It's dry. Is this the place? I thought this was the place. This definitely is the place, but there's no water here. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? How are we going to survive? And it said that they were confident that the water was going to be there. They were sure. This is where we go to find relief. But they were confused and disappointed because it wasn't there. Disappointment and confusion. And when Job saw his friends approaching, he thought to himself, here will be some comfort for me. This is going to be refreshing. My friends coming to speak with me. How weary I am, not only of this trial, but of life itself. Surely they will supply me some refreshment, some comfort. But they had nothing to quench his thirst. They had no answer that was satisfactory to him. It was distasteful what Eliphaz had said. And when he was at his most spiritually dry season, they were silent. God seemed to be silent. When they spoke, he was disappointed because they inferred he was responsible for all that he suffered and his affliction. That you need to pull yourself out of this mess, Job. You need to start seeking God. You need to do this. You need to do that. If I was you, I would do this. As if he hadn't been seeking the Lord. In verses 22 and 23, he's like, I hadn't expected much. I haven't made any demands on you at all. Like I haven't asked you for advice. I haven't been begging you for money. I didn't ask you to deliver me from my enemies or to redeem me from slavery. All I wanted was to be refreshed by friends who love me, would listen to me and care about me. Care how I feel, care how I'm feeling at this moment. And that didn't happen. You know, even when we keep our expectations low for others, they will disappoint us at times, even our closest friends and family. And this is often because we do the equivalent of looking for water in a dry riverbed in hope of refreshment that only God can supply from himself. He calls himself in Jeremiah 2.13, the fountain of living water. He is the fountain. He is the source of comfort. He is the source of hope and peace. Twice as the children of Israel were walking in the wilderness, they complained there was no water. God caused it to flow abundantly from a rock. Now you wouldn't expect that, right? That that water would come from a rock, but God did that miraculously, not just to Um, cater to his people's complaining, but to remind them that he was the fountain of living water. He was their source. He was their life. He knew their needs even before they asked, and he was able to supply them by his grace. As God's faithful to meet our physical needs, Jesus, he promised to give the living water of the Holy Spirit to all who trust in him. Jesus had visited Samaria and he was discussing uh, he had asked a Samaritan woman for a drink. And he said this in John four thirteen. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Isn't that great? That God would put the living water of the Holy Spirit in us. So we don't have to be searching everywhere, looking at our lives, say, how can things get better when we have him who is best, who is greatest, who will supply our needs, who will refresh us and comfort us and give us hope for the future, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Because for the Christian, eternity has begun and Jesus is our life. The living water that Jesus gives, it's not fed by snowy hillsides. It doesn't dry up in the summer heat. The Holy Spirit we receive by faith, he is refreshing. He is life-sustaining now and for eternity. Job didn't have the promises that we have now through the gospel and Jesus Christ. We can still forget that Jesus is the only one who has the refreshment and the comfort that we long for, that we need. We can look for others to supply what only God can, who gives us the comforter. Job six, verse 24, teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forceful are right words. But what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one who are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me for I would never lie to your face. Yield now. Let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness still stands. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? Job was a broken, humbled man and he remained teachable. He asked them to cause him to understand where I've done wrong. You've said that I've sinned, but how have I sinned? Like, tell me how I've been unrighteous. Tell me how I have spoken lies. Or I've done the wrong thing in any way. I w- He's like, I'll gladly receive a word of instruction and be silent from you. If you actually have some evidence to support your statements. But the words of Eliphaz, it caused Job to question the motives of his friends coming to see him. Have you come to speak truth or to argue with me? Have you, tried, have you come to overwhelm me or undermine your friend? Job asks. And he says, my words, they're like wind. I'm a desperate man. I'm in a terrible state. I feel awful. Terrible things have befallen me. I don't have answers. I'm asking why. I'm I'm despairing of life. And he felt like his friends were taking advantage of his suffering to accuse him of wrong. And he's like, look at me. And, And maybe they didn't want to. He's like, look at me. Do you think I'm lying to you? Would I lie to your face? I'm telling you the truth. He pointed out the injustice of accusing him of sin without evidence. And he held fast his integrity before God. The loss of his wealth, his family and friends, it had not deprived him of the ability to discern right words. He was the one who was blessing God, even though he suffered. You know, we're so blessed that the book of Job does not end here with a question. Like Jonah and Nahum and it's really cool how there are some books of the Bible that do end with a question and it gives us pause to consider. And if the book of Job ended right here, we'd be like, wow, that's rough. Job has gone through some terrible things and we don't have a lot of answers because uh, he's questioning his friends. He says, you're like deceitful streams. You, you, you seemed like you were going to provide refreshment, but you were dry and empty. Refreshment will come, brothers and sisters. It will come according to God's time and his way and his good intentions that we read about in James five eleven, which says indeed we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So that's the New Testament summation of this book, where in chapter six it goes to chapter 42 and there's a lot that happens there and God reveals himself. In the midst of his pain and suffering, Job and his friends, they could see no good in it. They couldn't see good that would come out of it. And this rings true in scripture. In Luke 24, after Jesus had been crucified, two disciples, they were sadly walking from Jerusalem To Emmaus. And they were joined by a man they didn't recognize who turned out to be Jesus, who had uh, been risen, raised from the dead. And he says, What's the meaning of this conversation that you walk and are sad? And they said, Are you like a stranger here? You don't know what's gone on? What's happened? The one that we trusted and expected to be the Messiah has been murdered and executed. He's been crucified. And their assumption that he was the one and how and when it was going to happen, it led to confusion. It led to disappointment and sadness. What they didn't know was the one who spoke to them was Jesus Christ, the source of living water. And they never expected that. They didn't know that as he unfolded the scriptures to them. They had no idea why Jesus came, not just to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Romans, but to save every sinner that cries out to him in faith. Like his plans were so much bigger than theirs ever were. The travelers along the road to Emmaus, they were sad because Jesus had died. Mary was shocked when she went to the tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus and found the tomb empty. Turn in your Bibles to John 20, starting in verse 13, as Mary arrived at the tomb, it says she was questioned by two angels. And this is what happened in John 20, verse 13. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Mary's expectations of Jesus being the Messiah were dashed. How could someone who's dead actually provide eternal life? And it's really one thing that she repeats in this passage is, I do not know where they have laid him. And then she sees Jesus and did not know that it was Jesus. And then she supposed him. She assumed he was the gardener. So there's a lot she doesn't know. But Jesus knows her. And that's what matters. He says, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? He knows But he asked the question as she cries, all she can think about is recovering the body of Jesus. I just want to know where his body is. I want to know what you've done with him. And then Jesus did something so personal, so sweet and kind. He simply says her name, Mary. In saying her name, he conveyed, he knew her. He knew all her cares. He knew her worries. He knew her preoccupations. He knew her assumptions, her sorrow, and her grief. Now risen and glorified, he was able to comfort her with his presence. Wow, that's so awesome. Believer, when you're disappointed, when you don't know what's going on, when your expectations have been dashed, when you don't know why you're suffering and you can't see any good coming out of it, when you grieve life is not going the way you think it should, remember that Jesus knows your name. He knows you. So we don't know so many things. And when we think we know, we know nothing as we ought to know. But we can, he knows you and you can know him. By his grace, he reveals himself to us. I mean, like what a mercy that God would come to us, that he would show compassion on us, that he knows we're dry. He knows we're, we're, we're dead in sins and trespasses and we're, we're going to destruction and hell. And so he comes to us and he calls out to us to follow him, to trust him, to believe in him when we suffer, to entrust our lives to him. When your confidence in others proves misplaced, your friends are like deceitful streams. Look to Jesus. He's He gives living water to all who thirst. He says, "If you're thirsty, come. Take my yoke upon me. Take your yoke upon you and learn of me. And a day will come when Jesus Himself will wipe His tears, wipe your tears from your eyes, where grief and sorrow will flee away and be forgotten forever. Like I look forward to that ultimately, but that day can be today when we look to him in faith and receive the comfort and healing and hope that we have in our savior, Jesus. To those whose eyes are opened by faith in Jesus, we can all say with Job, the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. The grace of God puts flavor back into life. There is much We will never know or understand, but knowing God knows us, it provides perfect peace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one who gives living water to all who trust in you. Thank you that you've given us a hope in this life that when we look around and we see, we can't see any good and we can't have any expectation of anything great or improving, Lord, you are always good, and there's no way to improve upon that because you're righteous and holy and sovereign and good, and you know all and you do all for us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, for putting flavor back into life with your grace, by giving us your love, by being merciful to us, by coming to us when we're down, by not forsaking us when we forget about you and we look to others to supply what only you can. And I thank you, Lord for your word, and for allowing Job to go through such things that we could glean from this example of what to do, what not to do, and how to be compassionate and merciful to those who suffer, and how to be gracious when we are the ones suffering. Now, we would learn to look to you to, to just throw ourselves entirely upon your mercies, and thank you that your mercies are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. Lord, I pray you would continue to minister your truth to our hearts, and that we would honor and glorify you now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you.